It's a great privilege to uh, lead us into an encounter with, uh, with Scripture. I want us to think today about um, the question, when, where, what are the circumstances of life where we hear God speak to us? Um, but I want to begin with some observations. I think we're all familiar with the language It's very common, the language of personal space, of uh, comfort zones. Uh, Everyone knows what it's like to have have your comfort zone, your personal space invaded by somebody. There are some people in life who just insist on getting a little bit too close to you when they talk. Uh, You know, some, some of us have personal spaces that are rather, you know, extensive, and some of us have personal spaces that are rather close. But anytime somebody gets a little bit too close, you feel uncomfortable. And we all have comfort zones. Um, I have two granddaughters, Audrey older, Juliet younger. And this summer they learned to swim. And it was a great, uh, it was a great joy. But I noticed one thing. Um, Juliet, the younger, um, is completely uh, fearless in these matters. And took to the water with great enthusiasm and can easily swim the length of a small pool, uh, swim underwater. Uh, Audrey, the older, a little bit more hesitant. Um, can swim, but not, not as well, not as eagerly. She, uh, you know, she like, like maybe she likes to swim close to the edge of the pool, close to the side, just in case. And, it's a matter of your comfort zone, isn't it? If you ever lived in a foreign country, you know, one of the bad things about a foreign country is it's so foreign. They're not like us. And uh, unless you have practice at this, you're out of your comfort zone immediately. So we value stability. We value comfort. Uh, we value Predictable expectations. I think we've all been in situations, perhaps at work or elsewhere, where we're being told to do a certain job, but we have a feeling that the expectations we've been told are not the real expectations. Like, we like to know what we're supposed to do. And when we learn that there are hidden expectations or unexpressed expectations, we feel that uh, somehow I'm in a bad place. We don't feel good about it. Oh, I think somebody has a testimony about that. Students will occasionally ask questions like, you know, after you've given a lecture or are about to give a lecture. Is this important? Because I have something I have to do and or will this be on the exam? Now, these are perfectly understandable questions. We've all been there. Sometimes you have to take shortcuts in life, but still, they want to know what the expectations are. They want to know what is that zone of comfort they have to construct beyond which lies discomfort. Well, Luke's gospel has stories about people who encounter Jesus, And it turns out to be an uncomfortable encounter. Jesus invades their personal space. He draws them out of their zones of comfort. 
And so I want to I want to focus on two of these today. There are actually quite a quite a number of these in the gospel, but I want to focus on two of them. People who end up in a state of sort of moral and spiritual vertigo. You ever had vertigo where things just spin around? Well, that these these people confront Jesus and they end up in a state of spiritual vertigo. Now, the first I want to talk about is uh, in Luke chapter 18. Uh, verses 18 to 30. This is the case of, oh, it'll be on the screen soon. This is the case of a man who asks a very pertinent question. A certain ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness. Honor your father and mother. All these things I've kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, the second passage is shorter. It's in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, uh, verses uh, 59 to 62. I'm guessing you've never heard a sermon on this one because this is, this is a very strange passage. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord... First, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I don't know if you ever had an encounter with Jesus along these lines, um, but some of us can have a hard time imagining empathetically what it must have been like for these these people. They they want to be disciples. They've they've declared that they want to do the right thing. Indeed, they are doing the right thing. But in the encounter with Jesus, they are thrown into a state of disequilibrium of discomfort they're shocked the man that just wanted to bury his father I mean he's not trying to get out of following Jesus he just wants to do the socially responsible thing indeed people would criticize him if he failed to bury his father I mean, after all, someone has to bury his father. And likewise, the man who just wants to say goodbye to his family. I mean, it's not as though this were a bad thing. He's not saying, you know, it will take me three months to say goodbye, and so I won't be able to be with you for a while. It's a very reasonable thing to ask. But Jesus' demand lies in another direction. 
Or if we think about the ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commands. Will I keep them? Now, you might think, well, he's not really telling the truth. Nobody can keep the commands. But in fact, Paul says that he did. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, with respect to the law, I was blameless. And I think this man is in the same condition that Paul was in. He was a faithful and devout Jew. He kept the commands. With respect to the law, he was blameless. But the kingdom of God lay in another direction. Not that keeping the commandments is a bad thing, just as wanting to bury your father is not a bad thing, and saying goodbye to your family is not a bad thing. We have social and moral responsibilities, and we need to attend to them. But the kingdom of God lies in a different direction. It asks something different from us. And that's what these people in Luke's gospel discovered. They were prepared to follow Jesus. They were, in fact, morally upright. But in the encounter with Jesus, they discover that being morally upright, that performing your moral and social responsibilities is not exactly what the kingdom of God is asking for. We can even go back to last week's fine sermon by Pastor Colin on the Good Samaritan. Admittedly, the man that approaches Jesus, Luke says, is trying to test Jesus. But he still asks a very good question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like the ruler in today's story. And, and he certainly knows what the law demands to love the Lord your God and your neighbor. But wanting to justify himself, he asks another question, who is my neighbor? Now, nothing indicates that he didn't love his neighbor. Obviously, he's thinking of fellow Jews. And nothing suggests he doesn't love God. What he really wants to know is, does he have to love the Samaritans? But still, he probably does love his Jewish neighbors. But again, the encounter with Jesus puts him in a state of discomfort. That even though he's doing the right thing, the king of God demands something different. And so the encounter with Jesus for these people was strange and offensive. Now, the encounter with Jesus was not always strange and offensive. Sometimes the encounter with Jesus was comforting. But not in this case. In this case, people's expectations about the kingdom and the conduct of their everyday life, lives was brought up short. That in meeting Jesus... They encounter something they did not expect. Something that does, did not fit within their expectations. So how are we to understand these words of Jesus? These shocking, perplexing, 
even offensive words of Jesus. Let the dead bury their own dead. Now, there's no sense trying to explain this away in some fancy way because I don't think it can be done. Jesus' words are, in fact, shocking. They are, in fact, offensive. Are we really to give away all of our money, as he commands the ruler, to let the dead bury their own dead, to turn your back on family? Well, I don't know the answer to those questions for those people. But we can say this. These potential disciples found themselves in a situation of discomfort and offense, of shock, of spiritual vertigo. And normally we would think of this as a bad thing. Nobody likes to be in a state of shock. Nobody likes to be in a state of moral disequilibrium, of spiritual vertigo where your world is spinning. It's unpleasant. But paradoxically, this was a good state for them to be in. Because it's in this state that they heard the word of God in a fresh way. It was in this state of shock and offense that they were enabled to hear God speak something fresh and different. Something outside the norm. Now these are good Jews. These are devout Jews. These are Jews who are careful to observe the law. And that's a good thing. But it's not the only thing. The kingdom of God is about something other. Without denying the goodness of those things. So how can we appreciate and experience what they experienced? Well, a few months ago, actually about, I guess about nine months ago, uh, Terry and I were at one of our favorite restaurants, Denny's. We've come to love, we've come to love Denny's. They have good pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> and good hamburgers. Uh, there's many things that Denny's does not do well, but they have good hamburgers. They have good pancakes. It was December. Um, that time of the year was December, and it was, it was dark. It was cold. Not actually cold. It was cool. But by Southern California standards, it was cold. It was sweater weather. And maybe a bit more. We were having dinner. Uh, we were on the, on the booth uh, at the very end. Um, the, um, the Denny's and Santee is uh, uh, close to the Walmart. We had a great view of Walmart. As we were eating, a homeless couple uh, came through the parking lot. And um, you knew they were homeless immediately because of the massing, massive shopping cart overloaded with literally their worldly goods, all of them. As luck would have it, they parked themselves right next to Denny's right next to the window where we were seated. I don't really like these situations. They lingered. 
They didn't have the good grace to move on. They lingered. They weren't begging. They were just parked. When you don't have a home, you have to park somewhere. And they had decided that that was a good place to park. It was well lit. Maybe a little bit out of the wind. They were just parked. Just trying to rest for a while. I kept hoping they would go away. It's one of these situations where you feel you should do something, you don't know what to do, you wish it would go away. I keep thinking I should do something, but I don't want to draw attention to myself. You know, no one likes to draw attention to themselves. I don't particularly like to talk to homeless people. They can be very strange. I had reached the frontier of my comfort and had crossed over into the zone of discomfort. I was in the presence of something that was strange and uh, possibly even offensive. Certainly social standards offensive. In the event, I somehow got up enough moral courage to get up, go outside, Introduced myself, said that I noticed that they had were sort of there. I forget just what I said, but it was probably something just as dumb as what I just said. <laughs> Asked if they would like some dinner. And of course they said yes. So I went inside and I ordered something for the two of them. And of course... You know, this is not fast food, and so now I have another conundrum. Uh, it's going to take a good ten minutes for the food to actually get here. What am I going to do? I guess I probably need to stand here and talk to them. And so I did. I'm not a great conversationalist, and honestly, with a homeless person, I don't know what the current topics of conversation might be, but... I talked to them for a while. Terry was with me. Somehow it ended up that I was talking to the woman. Terry was talking to the man. At length, the waitress brought the food out. All the while I was thinking, I probably should invite them in, but in fact, we're already down the road on this procedure. The waitress brought the food out in a styrofoam container. I gave it to them. We talked a bit more. I noticed that in the huge cart that they had, somehow they had rigged up a small kennel for a cat. We talked about the woman's uh, daughter, her attempts to reconnect with the daughter. The daughter was having some sort of legal problems. We talked about the woman's efforts to find a suitable uh, coat for the winter season. She had some kind of a coat on. I kind of stumbled out some words about Salvation Army or the tiny little you know, sliver of knowledge I have about these things. So in the end, we did the morally decent thing. We gave them some food. We talked a bit. Like the ruler in Luke's gospel, we had kept the commandments. Like the people whom Jesus summoned, we had acted in ways that are socially good. Appropriate. We could congratulate ourselves 
that we had uh, bought them a whole dinner and not simply perhaps given them leftovers. Still, the level of discomfort was, was pretty elevated. This is not the sort of situation I seek out. The food having arrived, I began to do the sorts of things that a person does to indicate that they want to bring this to a close and it's time for us to move on. I'm sure they had nothing pressing that they had to move on to, but I acted as though I had something pressing that I had to move on to. I had reached the limits of my humanitarian concern. I'd gone as far in the zone of discomfort as I was prepared to go. So I'd done the morally responsible thing, like the ruler, like the people in Luke's gospel. But had I acted out of the kingdom of God? That's a good question. Does the kingdom of God want something different sometimes? Why did I get out of there as quickly as I could? The homeless people were not threatening. They were actually quite friendly. They were grateful for the food. They weren't weird. They were just human beings in a bad situation. But they wanted to talk. I imagine if you're homeless, your opportunities for talking to other human beings is probably a little bit limited. I mean, I don't know. I'm guessing. Each had the other, but, you know, two people, sometimes you get to the point where you've said everything there is to say to each other and, and there's nothing more to say. They wanted to talk. They had lives to share. Um, difficult lives, but in some ways very mundane lives. The cat, the coat. They just wanted to talk. Like all of us, they wanted to be heard. They wanted to share themselves with somebody. So possibly in this case, on the one hand, I had a kind of a moral duty to feed them, and I did. Again, like the ruler, I kept the commandments. But was the kingdom of God asking for something different? Now, I don't know the answer to the question, did Jesus really want the man to leave his father unburied? I, I really don't know the answer. And I don't know the answer to the question, did Jesus really want the ruler to give up all his money? I don't know. But what was the kingdom of God asking me to do in that situation? Something more than keeping the commands. Even though they're good commands. Like the characters in Luke's Gospel, I was confronted here with a situation both strange and offensive. I was in a state of discomfort and disequilibrium. I knew that I was doing the right thing at one level, but not sure if I was doing the kingdom of God thing in another way. So what's the more that the kingdom of God might ask for? In this situation, perhaps the kingdom of God was simply asking me to offer the homeless couple what they wanted. Fellowship. Communion. Just talk. The one thing I actually did not want to do, it's fairly painless to buy a meal, 
to give them the food, but to invest time and listen to them, to talk, to engage them in conversation. Now, there's no moral obligation to do so. It's not a command that I enter into some kind of fellowship with the homeless. Indeed, people would pat me on the back and shake my hand just for giving them food. And this is a matter of high virtue for, for people. And, and that's a good thing. But, but maybe the kingdom of God is asking for something different, a deeper level of engagement. Costly, but not financially costly. I'm like the people in Luke's gospel. They do the right thing, but they're having a hard time dealing with the other demand of the kingdom of God. Now, I hasten to add, uh, this other demand of the kingdom of God, it's not, it's other, but it's not more. It's not as though, you know, there are moral duties, but guess what? Jesus came to demand yet even more moral duties. As though we know of a thousand, but Jesus came to reveal to us another thousand moral duties that we must perform. The kingdom of God is not a, a, a quantitative addition of new moral duties. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. The ruler had kept all the commands. That's all the commands there are. The kingdom of God is not about more. It's about something different. And this is an important point because it means that the kingdom of God is not about moral perfectionism. It's not as though the ruler fell short because he kept only 999 commands and there was still one he hadn't kept. No, he kept all the commands. The kingdom of God is not about moral perfectionism. It's about something different. Now, we often hear from Christians will say things like, you can't be perfect. This has actually become quite a refrain among Christians. You can't be perfect. No one can keep God's commands. But actually, that's not what the New Testament thinks. The New Testament thinks that, well, you can keep God's commands, and, and you should. That's what Paul said he did in Philippians chapter 3, and there's no reason to think that Paul was lying or deluded. When Paul says, with regard to the law, I was blameless, I think he was right. I think he kept all the commands. But Paul also realized that the kingdom of God is not simply keeping commands. There's something else going on in the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God is not about moral perfection. And that's a good thing because nobody needs more commands to follow. You know, we've all been in positions, work, family, friendship, where... Just about the time you think that you're doing the job, somebody comes along with, with more to do. And if you do that, you're sure that tomorrow they'll have more to do. The kingdom of God is not a continual piling up of additional duties. It's not a moral perfectionism. God expects us to keep the commands, and that's a good thing, but the kingdom of God is still asking for something different.
In this case, I think the kingdom of God was asking me to engage in an act of communion. Communion is just sharing. It's fellowship. This is why the sacrament that we call communion is so important within the church. I don't think we appreciate always, or perhaps ever, why we call it, among other things, communion. It is union with. In communion, we have union with God, but we also have union with each other. Um, This is not a theme that we emphasize in our tradition, and that's sad because it's a very important biblical truth. In communion, we come to share in God's life, and we share in the life of each, uh, each, everyone else in the congregation. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one. For we all partake of the one bread. So in eating, we share in Christ's body. We have communion with Christ. But because there's one loaf, we share share in each other as well. And we become one. It is in the act of communion that the church realizes its unity. This is when we come together and become one body. One body with each other. One body with Jesus. And one way of thinking about the church's mission in the world is to think of it in these terms. What what are we called to do? We are called to invite people. To share in this life, which is our life. Now, we're not, our task is not to get people saved. That's God's task. Our task is to invite people to share in this life, to be in communion with us. And I think in that moment last December at Denny's, I think God was asking me to extend communion to people, to extend the borders of the church. For just a few minutes to draw people into the communion that is the church, a communion that is with each other, but also at the same time with Jesus Christ. I think that's the, uh, the, the other that the kingdom of God is asking. Not more in the way of commandments, but something other. This is not exactly what Jesus was asking the ruler to do, or the man who wanted to bury his father, because the truth is, the encounter with Jesus always comes down to circumstances. But in my circumstances nine months ago, at Denny's, I think think that's what the kingdom of God was asking for. So, let me bring this to a close. No one likes to be uncomfortable. Physically, emotionally, financially, we like comfort. The truth is, the older we get, the more we like comfort. 
the less we like chaos, disequilibrium. It's no different in the church. We instinctively want to be like the ruler who obeyed all the commands and like the man who just wanted to bury his father. We want to work within clear and attainable moral parameters. And those parameters are good. But the encounter with what is strange and offensive leaves us in an uneasy, troubled state of disequilibrium. But that's a good state to be in. Because it's in these moments of shock and offense that perhaps we can hear God speak to us. In ways in which perhaps we don't hear God speak in the everydayness of our everyday moral lives. And it's very easy in the everydayness of life to go into a sort of automatic moral pilot to do our duties, and we should. But it can be difficult to hear the voice of God here. It's good to be in those difficult moments of shock and offense of disequilibrium. Sometimes it's here that God speaks the clearest to us. Or at least perhaps it's in these moments that we are best in a position to hear God speak. So, let us welcome those moments. It's good to be in a state of comfort, but it's good to be in a state of discomfort as well. It's in these moments that we can hear God and the claims of God's kingdom Indeed, these are the moments of God's revelation. Amen.